And I want to read in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is our Bible study for, for some time now, beginning at verse 35. I'll read through verse 49. You ready to read that with me? Then we'll refer to it as we can move along. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. And all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And is, as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now with regard to the resurrection, not the resurrection of Jesus, but with regard to our own resurrection after death, we have more questions than we have answers. What happens to an infant, a tiny baby that's never learned to walk, never learned to speak a word, just a tiny baby who dies uh, in infancy. What happens to that baby in heaven? Is it a baby there? Uh, does that tiny infant grow to, to, to become something else in heaven? And what about a person who is destroyed in some terrible explosion or accident and are blown to pieces? And, 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 and what about those that are lost at sea and buried there? There are so many questions concerning the resurrection. Um, Roger Williams was the founder of the Rhode Island colony. Uh, he became a seeker. He was a Baptist for a while, but he became a seeker. When Roger Williams died, he was buried, of course, and, and, and was placed in a, in a, in a, uh, a grave. 
but his body later was exhumed to, to move to another location and when they dug up his body, they found a strange thing had happened. He had been buried by this old apple tree and the roots of that apple tree had grown down into the head of the casket that, in which Roger Williams was placed. As a matter of fact, the root of that tree had grown into his head and it grown down his spine, just wrapping itself around his spine. And when it came to his hips, it divided and those roots went down his legs, two of them down to his ankles. Now that apple tree um, drew the chemicals out of this body and, and those chemicals became a part of the wood of that apple tree and the fruit of that apple tree. And people, <laughs> I'll let you uh, go from there. Uh, what, what about that kind of thing? There are so many questions that, that kind of swarm around this matter of the resurrection of our bodies like bees around a hive that, that, that are mind-boggling. But one of the amazing things and wonderful things about the Bible is that it never hedges on truth and it tries to deal with those questions that we have and give some kind of answer to these mind-boggling questions that come. Now you remember that the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians deals with a specific problem. Verse 12 of this 15th chapter indicates that the people in the church at Corinth were having some problems believing in the resurrection, not the resurrection of Jesus, but their own resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul is, is spending some time dealing with that issue, with the question, that, 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 with, the, with their doubt concerning the resurrection. Now this passage, the, the, the passage of Scripture that I've read and the verses that follow it really raise three questions. I'm going to deal with two of them tonight and the next, the next time we meet. The first question is found in verse 35. How are the dead raised? Now what he is asking is not concerning method or, or, or means, how does it happen? How is, how is it, how, the process of that? How does how, how is the process of that resurrection take place? It's not that. It's the possibility of it that he's questioning. How in the world does God raise the dead? How, how are the dead raised? What is the, how is that possible? That's the question he's asking. The second question is, is this, and with what kind of bodies will they come? What kind of bodies will we have in heaven? And that question deals with the, with the nature and, the, and the, uh, the kind of bodies that one possesses there. The third question we'll deal with later has is the question, what about those who do not die? Now, you need to remember the Corinthian culture. The Corinthian culture was very uh, a, a tendency to, to intellectualism 
even pseudo-intellectualism, and they love these philosophical debates, and they get around in the, in the, in the marketplaces, and they bring up these philosophical questions, and they debate them because they love to, to expand the mind, and they love to look wise. And that's what's going on here. They, they're really bringing these kind of philosophical questions that they can discuss and debate and argue over. Now, in response to the first question, how is it possible for the dead to be raised, Paul answers it with a rebuke. He says, you fool. Now, that'll discourage the next question, I'm sure. Uh, have you ever been in a class where you ask a question and the teacher just kind of, um, he might not have said it, but you, know, you, you got the hint, you got the message, you stupid idiot, that's the, that's the idea here. You fool. There's sometimes when that response is highly appropriate. <laughs> a, man made, a man named McNeely is the chairman of the Bible department in Biola College. I was reading it one morning. He was out working in his flower bed. And, and this, uh, the, there was a couple of young people, a member of a cult, who was coming by to evangelize the neighborhood to this, this cult practice that they believed in. So they got him in debate. They didn't know who he was from from anybody else down the street. And so he began to probe them with these theological questions, had them all confused. And they were just about ready to give up and they turned and just got all excited because they saw their leader coming down the street. And they said, oh, well, we, we're having a little problem with those questions you ask, but he can help us with the answers. So this guy came up, you know, that had this air of authority and superiority about him. And he didn't know McNeely either. And so Dr. McNeely asked him in their discussion and they got into it. He said, uh, oh, he said, do you read the Greek? And the guy said, yeah, I read it all the time. He said, well, hold on just a second. So he went inside to his library and he got a Greek New Testament and brought it out and opened it up to a, to, and handed it to him upside down. And the guy got the, got the Greek New Testament and he said, now what does this... Greeks say about this certain passage in 1 Corinthians, and the guy had it upside down and he was struggling, you know, trying to make some sense out of that Greek that he'd never seen before. Well, the response that McNeely could have given that man was, you fool. Now, you, I know that the Bible says you're not supposed to call anybody a fool. It's not what this is. What, what, you, you stupid guy. Sometimes when that when that response is appropriate. Now this is what Paul is saying, you stupid, you fool. That question is so simple, the most ignorant farmer can answer it. Now here are these intellectual Greeks that love to deal around in these philosophical questions and he's saying the answer to that question is simple enough for the most illiterate and uneducated farmer to answer. You know that you have to put a grain of of uh, wheat into the ground in order for it to grow. And, and, and the death of that seed is not the annihilation, but the channel of the resurrection. It is through that one's dying, that seed's dying, that the resurrection can come to pass. Now he just deals with that head on. But the answer to the second question, which is a question that we have asked again and again, what is it going to be like in heaven? What kind of bodies are these people that we love who precede us in death, what kind of bodies are they going to have? That's the question he deals with in some detail. And he does it 
with three analogies and with four contrasts. I want you to look at those with me. The three analogies are analogies that come from the grain, from the flesh, and from planets, heavenly bodies. Three analogies. Now the first analogy is the, the analogy of the grain, verses 37 and 38. Now this is what he says. I want you to hang in here and get this. He said, the seed is not the new form of life. Now if you can imagine, just, just uh, imagine this with me. Use your imagination. In your, in your left hand, you have, a, you have a wheat seed, a grain of wheat, and in your right hand, you have the plant that grows up out of the ground from that, that seed. You have the seed in your left hand, and you have the plant that grows up out of the seed of wheat that's like this seed here in your right hand. Now the Apostle Paul says, the seed here is not the new form of life. The body in heaven is not in every way the same as the body you will have. The body in heaven is not in every way the same as the body you now have. They are not the same in every way. The seed in the process of time gets a new body. And that person in the process of time, God gives a new body. They are not the same in every way. And what he's illustrating is this. Please put this down. What he's illustrating is the continuity of life. The continuity of life. In the resurrection, when our bodies are raised, whenever that happens, they will not appear in the same form, but they will have continuity of form to the old. There will be continuity of form. Just as there is continuity of the grain, so the new body will have continuity to the, to the old body. You take a watermelon seed and you plant that watermelon seed, what you get is not exactly what you planted, but it will be watermelon, see. And there is continuity. So what he's illustrating is that there is continuity in the body that is beyond to the body that is here. Second analogy is the analogy of the flesh, verse 39. Now let me say parenthetically at this point, that verse 39 is damaging evidence to the theory of evolution. Damaging evidence to the theory of evolution. For if you go back to the Genesis account of creation, you will find that God took specific pains and he was very careful to guard the kind of species. He said that the the animal the, the, was, had this flesh and the human had this flesh, etc., etc. Uh, the flesh of its kind, the flesh of its kind. And he was very careful to guard the species. Now the evolutionist would say that man evolved through the process from the lower forms through the animal kingdom into what he is now. But the apostle Paul never knew anything about the theory of evolution. 
because he comes picking up on the Genesis account of God's guarding the species and he talks about that in this passage. Now, what it teaches is, or what it illustrates, mark this down, it teaches identity. It teaches identity. There is an identity of each flesh. There will be identity there. We will know each other there because there is identity of each flesh. When Christ was raised, he was seen as the Lord Jesus. Although his resurrected body was unique to his earthly body, there was the identity that was forever his. Now, you will always be who you are now. Your identity will never be lost, not even in death. Third analogy is the analogy of the planets, verses 40 and 41. Now, this is what that teaches. It teaches diversity. There is a difference, he said, in the moon and the sun there is, there are even, there is even a difference in the stars so that there is diversity, so that when we get to heaven, we won't all look the same way. Now, I don't know how you're going to look, except I know you're going to have identity and there's going to be continuity to the life that you have now, and we're, but we're not all going to be like cookies cut out of the same cookie cutter. We're not all going to look, look the same. There's going to be diversity, all right? So now what he's talking about in analogy is this. There's going to be continuity of form in life. There is identity. We will know each other, and there is diversity. We'll not all look the same. Now he comes to, to draw four contrasts. Now I think the contrast that he makes here are going to help us greatly in understanding this. The first contrast is in verse 42. Now, if you had a sheet of paper, you'd want to draw Life is a perishable, we possess a perishable body. A body that perishes. Now, you're getting old. You even look like you're getting old. Now, I don't show my age, but but I can tell some of you have gotten a lot older even since I've been here. And you, your body is wearing out. And, and what is happening is that you are experiencing, and so am I, being facetious, of course, the, the, the perishable nature of the human body. It wears out. It, we are in the process of dying. This is a perishable body. Now, I need you to turn to a passage of Scripture and look with me. It's the 12th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, put your finger right in that place there, and I want you to turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes in the middle of the Bible. We're going to look at chapter 12. I preached on this text not long ago and somebody said, man, you, you really depressed me. He said, boy, you were negative today. Well, I'm just telling the truth. We're, we're dying, you know, in the process of perishing. Now, now, look what he says. He says, in the day that the watchman of the house tremble. He's talking about the hands. The watchman of the house or the hands, they, they, they tremble. 
and mighty men stoop. He's talking about the shoulders that carry the weight of life. My mother is bent almost over with, with, with age. She's stooped and her shoulders are drawn. She's bent over and stooped. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. That's easy to figure out what that is. What is that? What's he talking about? Teeth. And those who look through the windows are grow dim, the eyes. I'm reading this with bifocals. And the doors of the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. The ears fail you. You get hard of hearing. And one will arise at the sound of the bird. He can't sleep at night. He says, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Folks, this is the description of the, the experience in which we find ourselves. And you young folks over there, you enjoy it while you can because this is happening to all of us. Is that, isn't that right? This body is perishing. But watch the heavenly body, the resurrected body will never have the marks of perishing upon them. The eyes will have eyes, but they'll never grow dim. And we'll have hands, but they'll never tremble. And we'll have ears, but they'll never get deaf. And we'll have shoulders, but they'll never stoop. And we'll not experience the perishable nature of the earthly body any longer. Hallelujah. Second analogy or contrast. Verse 43. It says, it is sown in dishonor. Now on the, on the side that has earthly, you'll put dishonor. And, and, and what it really means is the impulses of the flesh, the, the tendency to respond to human impulses, to get angry, get mad, lose your temper, to, to be tempted to sexual sin, to, 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 to criticize. It, it is the, 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 the uh, impulses of the flesh. That's what this life is like. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It will be glorious in the sense that it will not be affected by the power of sin any longer. I'll never sin against the Lord again. A.T. Garden illustrates it like this. He said, the charcoal and the diamond are the same substance. Only the one is carbon in humiliation, in its humiliation, and the other is carbon in its glory. This body and the heavenly body have continuity and identity and diversity. They're related to each other. The difference is that this is carbon in its humiliation and that is diamond in its glory. It's sawn in dishonor. It is raised gloriously. You will not be tempted to sin. You will not sin. You will not lose your temper. You will not criticize. You will not... It, have the impulse to, to commit things that bring guilt and shame. Third, it is sown in weakness. 
On the earthly side, you'll put weakness. Now, we think these bodies of ours are pretty strong. Across the street tonight, maybe not tonight, but I walk out of here and I see all those guys over there pumping iron, you know, and girls. I mean, they're pumping iron, getting strong. These naughty bodies. I hate them. I hate this, this kind of thing. And we, we think these bodies are so strong. They're really not. If you had the strength in proportion to your size, if you had the strength of an ant, you could carry in your jaws a half a ton. In proportion to your size, if you could jump like a grasshopper, you could jump 30 feet to 40 feet in height. If you had the ears of a dog, you could hear sounds that you'll never hear. If you had the navigation equipment of a bird, you'd never get lost. You think these bodies are so strong, they're really not. They're weak and they get weaker. It is sown in weakness. Now watch what it says. It is raised in power. Now let me tell you what that means. It means that this new body, this resurrected body, will not be subject to weakness or weariness. It'll be free from the limitations of time and space. Now Jesus could just will and he could be somewhere. He wasn't limited to space and time. He, the disciples were in this room and he just went through the walls of it. He didn't have to go through doors. He wasn't limited to time and space in the resurrected body. He was in the earthly body. An illustration of it, Simon Peter. You know, when he was in prison, they prayed for his release. God didn't just take him through the prison cells or the prison wall. He had to go through the gates that were opened miraculously. But after he was in his resurrected body, Simon Peter walked through walls. It's not limited by time or space. It has unlimited possibilities does this resurrected body of ours. Fourth, it is a natural body. Everything about this body is, is natural. Now this is what that means. It means that this body is subject to natural laws. This body is subject to natural laws. You go without food and you're gonna starve, the natural law. You go without sleep and you're gonna fall down exhausted. The natural law of that. You're, the natural law of this life. This body is subject to natural law. The resurrected body is designed for the life of the spirit and is a spiritual body. Now I need you to turn. It's very important that everybody has a Bible. Turn to the, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 20 verse 34. It will show you something about this spiritual body. Luke 20, 34 through 36. Now the question is, in the resurrection, who, whose wife is this lady gonna be? And you know the context. Here's the answer. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage 
For neither can they die anymore, for they are like angels. Now that girlfriend you're sitting by, she's, she's like one now already, but it's different, of course. They are like angels and are the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now when he says that we have a spiritual body he means that we're going to be angel-like. Now, now watch this carefully. To be angel-like is not to be bodiless. For every angel that has appeared on earth appeared in bodily form. They sat at human tables. They have taken human food. They have exercised gracious missions for men in human farms. The great difference has been that they were not mortal. Their natural house, their natural home was in a higher sphere. We will be angel-like. We will have spiritual bodies. This body will be designed for the life of the spirit and will be animated not by the flesh but by the spirit of God. Now, he sums all this up kind of in verses 45 through 49. He talks about the last Adam, the first Adam. Now, Adam, Jesus is called the last Adam because Adam the first and Adam the last had two things in common. They had a unique birth and they had a sinless beginning. Now Adam experienced some things in the Garden of Eden in innocency that you and I will never experience. We'll never have the joy and the privilege on this earth of understanding or knowing. The first Adam was like the second Adam in that they had a unique birth and they had a sinless beginning. But after his sin, of course, Adam fell in the result, the rest of the story, you know. Now here's Paul's point. He said there is a natural, there is a spiritual. The natural comes first, the spiritual comes next. There is earthy and there is heavenly or spiritual. Now he said the last Adam took the earthy nature, did not sin, was raised and his resurrected body now he in, in his resurrected body now he lives. Now he's now now the point is this you have an earthly body because of Adam and you are of earth earthy but because of the second Adam you can have a resurrected body, a spiritual body, a heavenly body. Now, if you're saved tonight, you, you do, you have that. It's going to happen to you. If you're not saved, the potential is there. And the guarantee is this, that as you have an earthy body and you are earthy, you'll have a spiritual body, a heavenly body, and will be heavenly. And it will, the body that you have there will be like his resurrected body.
And you can go back and read the characteristics of that body as he was raised from the dead and all that went on there and it fits just exactly everything we've talked about to this point. Now, what are we going to be like there? We know this. We know there's continuity. It's not exactly like, our body's not exactly like this one. Thank God for that. Although, you know, some have, might have, I, I saw a guy yesterday, it just had his arm cut off. It, it wasn't even healed. And I've, heard, I've heard great sermons at funerals and, and I've even preached some that that guy will have an arm back, be perfect. I'm not so sure that's, real, that's good funeralizing, but it may not be exactly right. It might be that in heaven, what's, what's, uh, what's beautiful in heaven, you know, the beauty there is so different that, that that'll be fine as it is, you know. I'm not sure about that. We know that there is continuity. We know that it'll not be exactly like this, but there'll be continuity of form. And we know we'll have identity. And we know there's diversity. And we know that, that this body is perishable. That one is not. We know that this, this body operates on the basis of the impulses of the flesh. That will be glorious body. We know that this is a weak body that is a powerful body, not limited by time or space. And we know this is a natural body that is subject to the natural laws and that body is not subject to natural laws. And we have that guarantee. Now, in the uh, two minutes that remains, I want to draw an analogy. I want to make an application that, that, that fits where you are right now in this life. Now, we can talk about the resurrected body, but, but I want to bring an application concerning this passage of Scripture that will help you today, okay, right now where you are, right now as you live. And I want to say three things, and then I'll quit. Verse 38, first application. The body you have is the body God designed for you. How many people are so dissatisfied with the way they look? I wish I were taller. I wish I were shorter. I saw this guy play basketball for the Utah Jazz, 7'4", 290 pounds. My daughter was watching that game. She said, that wouldn't be so bad. Boy, I could slam dunk. I said, oh, don't say that. If you, you know, if you got... If you were made seven foot four, two hundred and ninety pounds, you'd wish you'd, you'd, you'd wish you were five foot two and eyes of blue, you know. How many folks are dissatisfied with the way God made them? Stop wanting to look like somebody else. I mean, God made you the way, stop wanting to look like him or her. Alpha just had his looks or her beauty, et cetera. Second application. Verse 39, the difference between you and another is as God planned it. So stop comparing yourself with somebody else. The most miserable people in the world are always complaining or, and always comparing and they, are, they, they constantly complain about the way they are because they compare themselves with somebody else. Not everybody can look like me. Quit comparing yourself, you know, to somebody else. Seriously. 
the way God, the difference God made you from another person is the way God wanted it. So quit comparing yourself to somebody else. And, and, and all that's involved in this, this self-image that's, that's so devastating, poor self-image, image distortion, he's caught up in that. I compare myself to him or her. Third, application. Verses 48 and 49. The limitations of our present earthly body are just as God predicted it would be. God knew you weren't going to be perfect. I mean, he predicted it. Stop trying, stop tearing yourself to pieces because you're not perfect. Stop demanding perfection of yourself. Accept the fact that you're going to fail some. You're free to fail. And I think that probably if you were to, to tell me your worst critic, it would be yourself. I mean, you, I, I'm this way, so critical of me. Stop criticizing yourself for the fact that you're not perfect. God knew you weren't going to be perfect. He predicted it. Now, things are not what they're going to be one day. But until they are, we need to get on with the business of the abundant life. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we just are amazed as we come to your word to find so much, so much meat there, so much truth, so, help, so much help, not only for encouragement for that which is beyond, but encouragement for that which is now. Teach us, Lord, to obey your word, not just to be hearers of it. For I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't give opportunity for, for, for decision tonight, for response, to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. There is no hope for you, no future for you without Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Have you ever given your heart and life to Jesus? The potential is there for you to live in heaven not limited by this fleshly life, but the response to give your heart and life to Jesus is absolutely imperative. You trust in Jesus, Jesus alone for your salvation. Perhaps you need to like, you'd like to come tonight, you feel the need to come and rededicate your life, to walk closer to the Lord, or to come and place your life in the church. I sure would encourage you to do that. I know God is, is pleased when you're obedient to Him. So I'll ask you to do it while we stand to sing.